Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this great country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on today's programme on what is a humid summer morning here in the capital is Anna Oliniki. Anna is the Artistic Director of Hype Dance Company in Sheffield, South Yorkshire. Um, Anna, welcome and thank you for joining us on the show. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Good morning, Anna. Of course, it's not the first time that we've uh, spoken on this programme. I think the last time that we had you on the show was a few weeks into the first COVID lockdown back in um, 2020. I think it was the April that we spoke. So not long after it was called in uh, mid to late March. And now sort of 14 long months later, of course, we're still very much in social restrictions. And it's been a long drawn out process, hasn't it? And I think we're all very, very exhausted by the pandemic by this point. Um, So looking back over that time by and large, Anna, how has all of this affected you and your business, would you say? Well, um, it has been a very long 14 months. Let's start by saying that. Um, I will also start by saying the business is still running. Um, You know, sadly, Mm. so many people in so many sectors, not just the sector I work in, haven't managed to sustain themselves. So um, I'll I'll start with a positive, Scott, that we are still here and um, albeit slightly skewed, um, still doing our thing. Um, I think it's affected us greatly in a sense of not being able to operate. Um, we run face-to-face dance classes that are still, as I speak now, um, under restriction. So we're still on limited numbers. We're still based in the studio. We are unable to do a lot of community and outreach work because of the spaces. Um, they're not suitable because of distancing. So I feel once distancing lifts, we'll kick back into normality. The process over the last, you know, since I spoke to you, being in lockdown, out of lockdown, in, out, yes, we can do this, no, we can't, well, hold on, the gym can open, well, could we do this, maybe we could that. It literally has been a time of ups and downs daily. Mm. You know, every business encounters that, you know, good times, bad times hard decisions, easy decisions. But honestly, I never want to go through it again. (laughs) It's easy to say. Never, ever. Um, And I think one of the hardest things, Scott, as as the director, as the leader of Hype Dance Company, there are nine people that work with us on a regular basis. Um, You know, over 15 people on on our books working with us was Retaining positivity and being so confident things will get back to our normal or then, if that makes sense. Because that's mm. my job. My job isn't to say to them, well, we might not get through this. We might not be able to keep operating. You may lose your job. Isn't what anybody wants to hear, you know? And I think mental health has been really affected in lots of ways mm. by the lockdown. So retaining, you know, absolute, don't worry, everybody, you know, I'm at the helm, we will get through it. And of course, we have. And of course, that was always my aim. 
but there were many occasions, Scott, where I wasn't sure. So the kind of public space and the private space, which anybody who's been running a business, large or small, you know, definitely has encountered over the last 12 months. I think that's completely true. I think everybody has had to sort of put on the brave face um, against sort of the uh, the grain, as it were, over the course of uh, this time. And it is difficult, isn't it, when there is so much pressure on you to sort of keep it together at the helm of a business. And it's just sort of really hit home that we need to look after as leaders our own mental health and well-being as well and sometimes when you're in that survival mode and you're so sort of invested in looking after everybody else you can forget to sort of take that step back when you need to and recharge the batteries as and when required and we need to make sure that we are doing that we've talked an awful lot um, about this uh, within the leaders council lately actually the effects of burnout and stress on business leaders themselves so i think you've raised an important point there anna for sure. Well, I have to say, I think the second we sort of opened um, for us as a business, it was April, we could reopen. So having closed mm. for Christmas, we then couldn't even work with children because, again, there have been different rules on working with adults in a dance school setting and working with children, believe it or not. Um, so we were back with our children from Christmas in April. And by April, I was thinking, okay, I, I could do with a week off now, which is ridiculous because you're going I haven't actually worked properly but absolutely what you've said the stress the uncertainty and you know this isn't this isn't about just people's jobs it's people's careers as well and I felt very strongly that yes people suddenly you know the supermarkets and the shops opened and everybody just assumed the world was normal yet we were wearing a mask and keeping distance but it still had so much effect on not just my business, the sector we're in, you know, even now, theatres can't reopen fully. You know, who knows, as, as silly as it sounds, the future of pantomime again this year in the theatre, will it go ahead? Because can people rehearse? Because you can rehearse to a point with distancing, but it's incredibly difficult and all of the COVID restrictions are out, you know, some of our ex-students have been auditioning and having to, you know, go and pay for COVID tests to be able to prove that, you know, they can walk into the audition room. The sort of rollout of this, certainly in the performing arts um, sector, we're still feeling it. And I, and I think that's something that is probably not fully understood, the implication of that. Exactly right, because even though we're edging tentatively closer to normality as we knew it there are still restrictions in place and it does have a significant impact on industries that are affected and perhaps people don't maybe fully appreciate that now that they're allowed to of course frequent some of their favorite venues again albeit at a limited capacity so for the likes of yourselves Anna it's an anxious wait isn't it just to see if the new freedom day of July the 19th is going to go ahead and that sort of full steam ahead operation can come back as it was Absolutely. Um, although I, I, I almost, I, I think the government have been in an incredibly difficult position. I will say that. And mm. I think the support they have offered businesses has been wonderful. However, labelling the date for June, I think, just caused even more stress because everybody then became so hopeful and so disappointed again. So I honestly, Scott, 
we're just doing what we're doing with the restrictions we have. And when it changes, it will change. I'm almost ignoring the dates now because if I'm driven by the dates, then there's a possibility we'll be let down again. So mm. we honestly have made no plan. Um, the only plan we would like to do is some kind of Christmas performance fundraiser, you know, get everybody back in the theatre and, and the theatre that was used in Sheffield, they're still not open and they still don't know when they will open to be able to operate safely. Um, so even that's up in the air, you know, and that's as far down the line as December. Um, but it will change at some point. So again, I don't want to sound pessimistic. It will change and when it changes, yes, absolutely. All of the things we've had on hold from early um, 2020 will hopefully be able to roll out um, as of autumn 21, which is quite a, quite a delay, but we'll still do the work at some point. Yeah, exactly. Fingers crossed that does all come together absolutely as planned. And I suppose for people who sort of advocate continued restrictions for as long as they are necessary in terms of keeping people safe, I think you do have to appreciate the difficulties that a company like yours has to go through because even when it comes to trying to be innovative and trying to sort of get a remote or video sort of dance class service rolled out, I mean, there are some real complexities behind that. So it's not just a simple process of setting a camera up and being able to teach online classes, is it? No, and I think that's a slight contentious issue with me is the integrity of what we deliver. Mm. Um, in order for all to deliver what we do and how we do it at Hype Dance Company, um, we need to be with the students. We need to be in that space. We need to be walking around. You know, dance is three-dimensional. You need to look at it from three dimensions. Um, and I have to say, when we first launched um, last year into the, the lockdowns, I, I said, no, we're not doing online classes. We're not doing things for the sake, which almost sounds contradictory. You know, well, hold on a minute. Your business is closed. You need some income. But my integrity throughout this lockdown was as important, mm. if that makes sense. Um, so we didn't operate online. All we did was call on favours from many, many people that we've worked with and go, would you do a masterclass for half an hour via Zoom to fundraise, which was great. So anything we did was a one-off taster, you know, people that are over in Los Angeles, that, you know, we would never get the chance to have a, a workshop with them. We did that online um, and tried to maintain that integrity of in order for us to do how we work our way with our level of, you know, tuition, a regular class on Zoom just won't won't work for us. And that was quite tough because other people were seeing other places doing it. And that's great. And that, that fits their, you know, their business model and how they work. And that if that works for them, great. Um, and I really, really stuck my neck out with that to say, actually, we still need to give, you know, great service and, and a one-off fun thing is fine, but we, we, we can't expect people to pay for something that is actually not the same experience mm. for them as well, if that makes sense. Um, exactly. I mean, I, I, did, I did buckle in, in January with some uh, adults that I teach private lessons I'm like, come on, Anna, please, please, please. So I did do January and February with the online um, Zoom, much to there. But they, they were great. I was like, oh, how have people done this in 12 March? Um, 
But again, it, it's hard to survive. Everybody's had to find that way of surviving. Um, we've been very fortunate that our retention has remained the same. Um, you know, people haven't gone, oh, well, I haven't been at class. I'm not going to come back. You know, if anything, everyone's been more excited to return. Um, so, yeah, sort of pivoting the business, yes, to a point we've done. Um, but that integrity remains remain quite high up there for the online stuff. That's exactly it. It's not a one-size-fits-all approach, is it? And I understand, of course, it has been an ordeal over the last 14 months pivoting the business and trying to plot a course through it. But I suppose from going through such a sort of stressful and challenging experience, you've probably come away from this feeling like you've actually learned quite a lot as a business leader as well, haven't you? Would you say that's true? Absolutely. I think in the last year, I've done more business work than usual because I'm an artistic director. I'm about developing creative projects and sort of getting on at the grassroots level of, of working with dancers being in a space. And this was a total, you know, I don't think I've had as many conversations with my general manager on finances or casting ever. Um, and I think what it has done is made me reflect positively, actually, Scott, and go, wow, you've got through that. But the company, um, if we can get to November, which we will, the company's 17 years old. And to run a not-for-profit company for 17 years in itself, you know, big tick. To then sustain that with our premises over this pandemic another big tick so I think it has given that time to look back and reflect look at what we do why we do it how we do it and and forecast for the future right so do we really need to be doing that because we could refine it into this that works so it's given a little bit of space I think um but along with the space you know underpinning with you know a tidal wave of panic and stress and uncertainty and I think as a as a business leader, you are always certain because it's your business. You know what way it's heading. You know that in March, this is going to happen. In June, that's starting. In September, you're looking at this. And then suddenly that control was taken away through the pandemic. Mm. So suddenly we're, you know, we're used to being in control. Not, not as a business tyrant, you know, obviously working with general managers and management committees. But suddenly that control of decision-making for your own business that you have built up from scratch was taken away. And that, that's a strange feeling. It's taking away the ability to plan, isn't it? Because you can no longer sort of forecast months and years ahead of time. It's essentially reduced to days and probably weeks at best because you don't know what's happening with the social restrictions. I know exactly what you mean there. And um, just thinking about the future, as you sort of spoke about briefly then, I do really want to talk about that as well just before we do wrap things up because it's still a very big if, isn't it, as to whether we do see social restrictions go completely on July the 19th um, or as to whether maybe some of them will be staying around with us for a little bit longer then of course there's the variable of what's going to be happening next winter but in an ideal world if we do manage to leave social restrictions behind and put faith in the vaccination program where do you ideally want Hype Dance Company to be by this time next year Anna? Oh well big 
bigger and better, I think. Um, I think there are so many people that still aren't managing to get on our classes because of restricted sizes. So bigger and better in terms of our academy and our access. Definitely delivering these projects, uh, dementia projects, as outreach, a young vocation, a pre-vocational dance, um, dancer training program that's been put on hold, rehearsing for a piece of work to do with the elderly and care. So actually, in a year from now, I'd love to be able to go, we've, we've done all those. We've managed to safely, successfully deliver those projects. And we're on to the next, you know, what's happening into 2023, it would be then in a year's time. Um, and still be here, Scott. As, as basic as that sounds, I think it's broken my heart to see these small businesses that, you know, sad, you know posted things on Instagram you know, sadly, we've decided, you know, we're not able to sustain. That has broken my heart because I know what goes into it behind the scenes, emotionally and financially. You know, we all want our businesses to survive. So I am 99.9% certain we will have achieved all of that and we will still be here in the 18th year of the business. I'm really just back to doing what we do with the high level integrity that we have as a company. I do certainly hope so. And um, I think with the resilience that you've sort of built up over the last 14 or so months and getting this far probably holds you in good stead alone for the future, Anna. And I think as we do start to sort of see the sort of post-COVID landscape hopefully becoming that little bit clearer, I'd love to catch up with you again at some point in this next year and just see how things are getting on because there are still a great many variables in this and hopefully, fingers crossed, we're going on a positive path now. Absolutely, I hope so, and and I remain, you know, very positive uh, because I have to be. And this this is what mm. I know, Scott. This is what my team knows. We we know dance, and we know performance, and we know the art. So without that, we're we're looking for a career change, and that that won't happen on my watch, <laughs> as they say. So onwards and upwards hopefully so and I do love that positivity it really is infectious and I think we could all just use a dose of it moving forward and fingers crossed July the 19th finally does go ahead as planned um, and I've got to say I really loved having you join us on the show again today as I say that positivity really really does bring a smile to the face and um, do please as well take care and stay safe with everything still going on because we're not quite out of the woods just yet but I'm confident the better days are ahead of us that's great thanks for having me again Scott it was a pleasure for me to welcome Anna Oleniki of Hype Dance Company back onto today's programme. Um, coming up next on the show today, we'll be joined by incumbent Leaders Council Chairman and former Education Secretary, Lord David Blunkett, who will be sharing his take on the events of the last 14 months and his hopes for the weeks ahead. Um, that will, of course, be coming up on the show next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help, I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks, those who uh, don't have um, 
declined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the, the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. and. In that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery. Whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is as far as humanly possible is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, we'll be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cyber security side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs, but all the way through the 
public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm. But actually, I think there's a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's a, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been. For, 
all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, The health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting 
wide enough advice were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London. But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real, on the back of that. But it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people have criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh- um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we Mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and 
anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be to prolonged I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well. Understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019, I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, 
adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. So Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn Mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from '97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did. And the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want 
as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. What's the one uh, key thing that Secure needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority in historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn Mm -hmm. from each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. 
Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.